This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit per second network connections, Intel E5 processors, and top of the line hardware to run your servers on. It deploys Linux in seconds from a Linode cloud and you can choose your Linux distribution and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe and a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, plumbing, scaling, and everything else you would want. So get the most out of your Linux node by checking them out at linode.com or devchat.tv slash linode. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of React Native Radio. I'm your host, Nader Dabit. Today on our panel, we have Spencer Carley of Handlebar Labs. Hello, everyone. Lee Johnson of G2i. What's up? And today our special guest is Max Lynch of Ionic. Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. This is really cool. Um, I've been, Ionic was kind of like my first successful foray into kind of like mobile development, I guess you'd say, as a JavaScript developer. And I've been a huge fan ever since. So it's really cool to have you on and talk about all this stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it feels like a long time we've been doing this, but I guess it really hasn't been that long. Things just move really quickly in this space. Yeah, so uh, can you give everyone um, a quick intro like of who you are, if they don't already know, and kind of like what, you're, what you do, I guess? Yeah, yeah. so um, yeah, my name is Max Lynch. Uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm a Midwesterner, and uh, I've been working on this company, Ionic, for the last uh, about five years, and basically Ionic, if you're not familiar with it, is a, uh, primarily an open source project that helps web developers build apps for the App Store, but now increasingly apps for the mobile web, like progressive web apps and Electron and things like that. So focus on just helping web developers be productive. And uh, uh, the company behind Ionic, I'm um, the CEO of the company, and we help increasingly big teams that are trying to build a lot of different mobile apps, um, you know, not just the ones that you'd, you'd see in the App Store, what we call like the flagship consumer apps, but also, you know, things for every line of their business. So it's a really exciting space to be in. Um, you know, we're constantly learning. It's fun to get to do open source as a, as a full-time job. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much what we do. So is, is the company behind Ionic also called Ionic? Yeah, so we started... Uh, <laughs> We started the company back in 2012, and we were doing something different. So if you were familiar with jQuery Mobile, we built a tool called Codica, which was like a drag-and-drop developer tool. Uh, and this was on the homepage of jQuery Mobile for a while, and that's kind of how we got our start. Uh, but in 2013, we you know, we felt like there were some improvements that we could make to, to, to jQuery Mobile, and uh, this was kind of around the time like Angular was blowing up. Uh, it was kind of like perfect storm. jQuery Mobile uh, was uh, uh, we felt like there were other things we could do with it to improve it, and, and Angular was kind of really spearheading like single page apps and web developers building serious apps. Uh, and so we built a UI framework targeted at that developer base called Ionic, and it kind of took off. And we pretty much uh, stopped doing all the other stuff in the company and focused on this uh, Ionic framework. Um, and so today, you know, we kind of use Ionic as an umbrella for a lot of different things, but Ionic framework is really 
the flagship open sourcing that we're most known for. So you said that you're in Madison, Wisconsin. That's an interesting place to be for such a hot tech company um, and a company that has done so much, not only you know uh, in the U.S. but like around the world. That's that's pretty cool. Can you kind of talk about that for a little bit? I know I know like a developer, Josh Thomas, personally pretty well, and he works with you there. I like him a lot. So there's obviously and obviously just building what you've built. There's a lot of sharp people there. But uh, just out of curiosity, like you know. Has it been different, like than like running a company maybe on the on the West Coast or something there, and finding developers? Um, yeah, first of all, shout out to Josh because I think he he told me a story today about how he was he was there from the beginning of, of your guys' podcast. So it's kind of small world. Yeah, uh-huh. he he was actually at the at the dinner like where we discussed like starting this podcast, like yeah. me and like four or five other guys. Uh, he's a big reason that we're we're doing more with React, which we can get to later. But um, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Milwaukee, and I went to school at UW Madison, majored in computer science. Uh, and for, kind of in college, I uh, was spending a lot of time on Hacker News, actually, and I still do to this day. I'm kind of addicted to it. Uh, and I kind of got a little bit of the the startup bug. This was like in 2007, 2008. So it was just kind of starting. Um, and, you know, I was I was trying to think about what I wanted to do after college. And, you know, I, I felt like my grades weren't weren't good enough. And I wasn't, uh, you know, a good enough academic student to, get, to go get a job at Google. And it just felt like risky trying to uh, rely on passing an interview. I know interviews are kind of uh, a, a, big, a big source of frustration in this community. Um, so I, I felt like starting a startup was kind of a good way to go control over my career. Um, we we kind of started this company here just by accident in Madison. Uh, it it just so happened that what we worked on on the side um, got off the ground and people used it. And I think I think really it's amazing what you can do today if you're building an internet internet company because you're pretty much international on day one. And and so for us like. Our customers weren't necessarily in the Bay Area. Um, and we, you know, the only reason I think we would have moved there back then was potentially to raise money. Um, and we got lucky with some some local investors, somewhat local investors that helped us kind of get some money and, and get off the ground. And we bootstrapped the company before that. So we had some revenue coming in. Um, and at that point, you know, once you get to enough traction and you're kind of uh, visible around the world, it's easier to then go to the coast if you want to raise money, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can build these companies anywhere. Uh, and you know, if you're scrappy and you're, you're focused on the internet. So um, are you a remote company? Is that what you're saying? You're, or, or, or are like a lot of your developers like remote? Um, most of our developers are in Madison, but we do have a number of remote people and we are growing that. So uh, we're trying to be a, a like a, a first class remote company. And it's it's been hard and we've really had to practice. And I think we've gotten a lot better at it this year or the last year or so. Uh, but that's been a challenge for us. But, yeah, you know, we, we in the long run, I want to have people working for Ionic all around the world. I don't really want to be limited by. Uh, geography, I think, um, I think it's it's not a great idea for startups to try to go and 
compete with Google and Facebook in their home turf if you're trying to hire. Uh, I think that's really expensive and, and you're not going to keep people around and, uh, you know, hiring remote people and finding people around the world. Like that's how I learned to program. That's how I like, you know, got into this industry in the first place. It's, it feels really natural for me. Uh, but yeah, I think remote work is the future. It's just, it's hard. And it, and I think we're all going to have to get better at it. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you definitely that we talked to a lot of developers and they, they all want to work remote. So I think the, uh, the developer side is there and it's, it's getting better. I think it gets better every year. Yeah. And the, you know, the tools have gotten a lot better too. Like, you know, Slack has been huge, but even just video, video chat, like, you know, Zoom and, and Slack chat, uh, Slack video really, really helped. You know, yeah, there's, you know, Skype's been around for a while, but something about it just didn't break into kind of the ubiquitous work environment. So I think we're there, you know, maybe because we all have better internet connections now, but um, now it's kind of the matter of like the culture, like how do you hire work uh, remote employees, keep them happy and not feel like they're, you know, second class in the, in the environment, which is something that we, we haven't always done a great job at, to be honest. Um, but we're, we're identifying that and just realizing like we have to get better. And so some of the things that I do to try to help that, which probably annoys people in the office is like, I don't do in-person, uh, uh, meetings, especially if we have another like remote person, I'll go to my computer and do a video chat. I mean, if everyone's in the office, I'll do, I'll do it locally, but you really have to like really try to kind of include other people and, and, and make sure that you're treating the video discussion as like not just someone dialed in who's listening, but part of like an active part of, of what you're doing. Yeah. I was going to uh, say exactly that. I've, I've worked remote for many, many years now. And, and there were environments where I was literally the only remote person in a team of, you know, hundreds. And I was definitely a guy on an Island. Right. Um, but you contrast that with smaller teams where everyone is remote and there's much more of a cohesive community there because everybody can relate. So, uh, yeah, I agree. And, and yeah, good job on you for, for seeing that and, and doing it that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up or I, I cut my teeth in, in this industry, like hanging out on IRC, um, and being online. So for me, like that's, that's, the normal way of working, you know, the, the not normal way is being in a, you know, a cube farm or an open office plan with everyone around and doing a lot of talking. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. So you were saying that you bootstrapped or maybe you got a little bit of investment, but you've been bootstrapping and, and uh, just out of curiosity, how, how does the company make money? I know you have like a paid tier, don't you with Ionic, but, um, I'm wondering what other ways that you found to kind of monetize, like do you do consulting and things like that? Yeah. So, um, we've, we've actually raised a decent amount of money at this point, a little over 12 million. So we're not really bootstrapping anymore. Um, but the, the whole business model behind Ionic is, uh, and I think that, I think we're going to see more of these kinds of open source business models. We, we've made this open source project, Ionic framework. And, you know, we've, we've got a lot of people using it, a lot of web developers using it, um, and they're building apps from, you know, startups up to, uh, large enterprise companies. And for us, um, the business model started to develop, especially when we started to get those, uh, enterprise users, because if you can show that you've, you've built something that big companies are using and they're relying on and, and 
they kind of they'll find you in, in some respects and, and want more. Um, and so we've we've had to be diligent about what that more means. So we don't actually do consulting or custom development, but we do have uh, additional software that kind of takes the open source part further. So for us, our main thing right now is this product called Ionic Pro, which is we call it a mobile DevOps platform, which is a fairly new term. But the idea is you're, you're building with Ionic Framework or, you know, a good analogy here would be like you're building with React Native. Uh, and then there's a bunch of software on top that can kind of help you push updates to your app remotely, do builds, CI stuff. And we call that like the pro layer. So you pay monthly for that. Um, and that's how we make most of our money. And that's probably going to be um, our biggest kind of growth area. And then, you know, in the enterprise, there's a lot of different uh, things that you can do that you don't really expect. And I've really had to learn a lot about these big companies because um, I just didn't have a lot of experience working in that environment. Uh, but it's it's amazing how many things that uh, they need help with and are willing to pay for. Um, and I, I think that enterprise part of the business is probably going to be our biggest focus going forward. So let's take a step back. Can you kind of talk about Ionic, where it started and kind of like where it is now and then maybe where it's kind of headed in the future? Yeah, so um, I, I told a little bit of the story when I think the audio was messed up, but I'll just go back and kind of mention some of that. So we we initially were doing jQuery mobile development, and this was back in like 2012. Uh, and I think jQuery mobile really was that first kind of uh, kind of sweet spot where you had web developers who wanted to build mobile apps, but there weren't really any tools targeted at them. And the native development ecosystem was like outright antagonistic about uh, those kinds of developers building apps. Um, and so, you know, we we had built a kind of our first part of the company on jQuery Mobile, and we were really excited about it. But we just felt like uh, this was probably around the the time the iPhone five came out. Uh, we felt like the browsers and the phones had gotten fast enough that you could do some really native style stuff with J with JavaScript. Um, and, and around the same time, you know, Angular, this was 2013, Angular had just released like Angular 1.2 and it was kind of exploding. Uh, and so we wanted to see if there was a way you could make a better jQuery mobile that was a little bit more focused on these like single page apps that has kind of, had kind of emerged. Um, so we ended up kind of building what ultimately was sold as like a, you know, mobile development framework for Angular. And that was our pitch early on. And so that community, uh, was really passionate and was looking for additional things to add on to their Angular, uh, love. And so Ionic was like a good fit for, um, people who want to build mobile apps. So this was like 2013, 2014, that community really was how we got our start. Um, and, you know, Angular has been a really big part of Ionic for the last, you know, two or three, four years at this point. And yeah, so, you know, we've always been focused on the web and that's really been something that we've stayed very true to. We, we consider ourselves web native. So we want to support whatever, you know, the web, wherever the web runs, we want to help developers build apps with it and give them UI components and tools that make their lives easier. So going forward, uh, you know, I think every, everyone's, everyone knows what's happened in front end, right? Like Angular wasn't the thing that totally won in everything else. Like we're all using Angular today. There was a uh, kind of an explosion of different frameworks and different approaches. Obviously, React 
um, has kind of been a breakout success. But now, you know, Vue is coming out and you've got these new new projects like Polymer and, and Stencil, which we created for building web components. And so our strategy has shifted a little bit to kind of say, you know, we, we just want to be that UI layer for web developers who are targeting browser runtime. Uh, we don't really care what framework they're using. Like if you want to use Angular, React, or Vue, or you want to use, you know, vanilla JavaScript or even jQuery, uh, we want to give you rich JavaScript controls that work in that environment. Um, and that's really our changing focus, uh, what we're really most excited about. So is is there going to be like a future version of Ionic that that you can target Vue and, and React and, and Angular? Or is that already something you can do now? Or is that going to be something completely different than Ionic? Yeah, so you can kind of do it now. And, and we're working on Ionic 4, which is the, the 4, 4.0 release that is going to have specific support for other frameworks. And what we've done, you know, like over the last four years, we've rebuilt Ionic two or three times at this point. So the first time we built it for Angular 1 and we bound it, you know, it was very tightly bound to Angular 1's component model. Uh, in 2015, Angular 2 started kind of being hinted and we worked closely with the Angular team to rebuild it for Angular 2. Uh, and so we kind of realized like we never wanted to do that again, not because Angular was a bad choice, but because uh, you spend so much time building custom bindings for frameworks that you end up not being able to do all the things you want to do on your part of the stack. Like we felt like we were letting our UI components suffer a little bit because we were spending so much time um, dealing with, you know, Angular's component model, the tooling around it. Um, and it really is just because uh, that was maybe the wrong place for us to kind of bind around. So web components have been something that we've been in very, very intrigued about because it gave us that promise of being able to ship reusable JavaScript components, but without having to really tightly bind to, uh, you know, a specific framework and build all this custom stuff. So uh, we we built a new tool called Stencil, which is a web component compiler. And the cool thing about it is it, it uses TypeScript, so we can build these components using TypeScript, and it's kind of a, a merge between React and Angular because we we like a lot about Angular and we like a lot about React. Um, so there's some JSX, but it's it's a class based uh, uses decorator, so it's it looks like kind of a, a blend between the two. And 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 we have tools that will process that and output web components, but also we can output uh, framework bindings for it automatically without having to maintain them. So uh, Josh actually is working on this right now for React. We will be able to generate pretty much first class React components using this stencil tool. Uh, they'll use web components underneath in a way that plays nice with React, uh, but then we don't have to maintain a custom React binding. So we can work on our components, which is what we're best at, and then everyone can benefit no matter what framework they're using. That's kind of the uh, where we're going because we never want to rewrite Ionic for another framework ever again. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, so with that, were you able to branch out from a mobile focus to just web in general? Yeah, so uh, we're really excited about progressive web apps and we, we're also excited about kind of traditional desktop apps and electron apps. So, you know, mobile is is where a lot of exciting stuff is happening. But especially as we've, we've started to do more work with enterprise companies, you know, there's a lot more diversity in kind of the the devices and the screen sizes and things that they're using. You know, they'll have someone, you know, a field agent on a phone, 
We've got someone in the office using a laptop, someone's on desktop, tablet, et cetera. So uh, the web uh, paradigm is kind of a good fit for their needs. Um, and so we, we we're trying to be a little bit more device agnostic and to work both on mobile and on desktop. Um, and and uh, what we've had to do to, to get there has been you know fairly straightforward. Uh, I think people are used to app style layouts now. They're a little more used to like having a menu and having tabs. And we find that it actually maps fairly well to different screen sizes if you're just a little bit smart about how you lay things out. And you know it's kind of like responsive design, but to the next level. Um, and so we're finding that's actually taking us pretty far and people are, are pretty happy with it. So um, yeah, I think you know we want to run wherever the browser runs pretty much. So I know that you're working on something called Capacitor. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that fits into all this stuff? Yeah, so uh, most people who know Ionic know that we have historically been based on Cordova. And uh, we uh, we picked Cordova back in 2013 because it was you know the, the de facto way to build web apps that had connectors into native land. And we love Cordova. We're, we're huge fans, you know, certainly not trying to... Um, Certainly not trying to bring any any negativity on on that project because it's been hugely important for us. Uh, but we just felt like we were being asked to uh, provide a, more support and a little more expertise over that part of the stack, which is like, you know, my my app is interacting with this iOS SDK, but you know it's returning the wrong data or it's crashing on iOS 11, and we were kind of just saying like, cool, that's not really our problem. Um, go file an issue on someone's you know GitHub repo. And it got to the point where like that became a liability for us, both for you know our business, but also like, you know, being able to tell a customer like, sorry, we can't help you. It's just not something that you really want to do because, you know, they're they're entrusting us to help them with every part of the stack. And they don't necessarily know where Ionic stops and where it begins, because there's so many layers to the onion. Um so uh that was kind of the initial motivation was just to get a little more expertise at the native layer. Um, but also, you know, the one we started looking into what a new Cordova would look like with, you know, being inspired by all the other projects out there like React Native and TurboLinks. Uh, we we uh, decided that it made sense to build something new and to also try to make it more friendly for that multi-device thing that I kind of mentioned. So treating progressive web apps and, and web apps as a first-class citizen and, and, you know, kind of targeting one app that had connectors for, um, you know, iOS and Android, but also Electron and also for the web uh, and trying to make it a little more seamless because people are struggling. They were, they're building an app for iOS and Android and then running it in the browser. And like it was erroring out because they were trying to use a plugin that didn't exist, even though it wasn't really necessary for that screen and that experience. So just trying to smooth all that out and just make it a little more uh, of a more integrated experience into Ionic. So that's like a very hefty, thing to be doing like a very um large amount of work in, in my head at least um because you're basically trying to implement these native sdks uh, on the web right pretty much is that kind of what you're gonna be doing for ios and android um so it's kind of like uh well you know it's actually to use an analogy it's very similar to react native in a lot of respects and i think um there's a lot more in common uh, with Cordova and React Native than people realize. Um, in particular, like the plugin, the way you build plugins is is very, very similar. They Obviously, React Native has a little more 
uh, kind of type inference, so to speak, in a different way that you interface with the APIs. But generally, the idea is the same, right? Like you, you have a native method, you get some data from the client, you do something natively, and you return it back. So that part is is kind of a solved problem. And you know what I liked about what React Native does is it it kind of statically loads all the plugins. So you don't have to worry about, you know, if you've done Cordova development, you have to worry about like device ready. Um, but if you just load all your plugins in advance, they're all, they're ready by the time your app loads. Um, so there's like, you know, tweaks that you can make, but at the core, it's, it's pretty much as simple as that. I get some data, do some native functionality and return it. Um, you know, managing all that and kind of managing the plugins, the lifecycle of the app, uh, there's a little more work involved there, but, Actually, most of the work goes goes into the the CLI and kind of the tooling around managing dependencies, uh, building your project. Uh, this has been my pet project for the last three or four months. So I've been working on it pretty much 100%. So my, my head's pretty deep in it right now. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it was also less work than I, than I had anticipated just because uh, the APIs and native APIs have gotten so much better. You have, you know, we use WK WebView on iOS. It's just so much easier to pass data back and forth. Whereas before you had to do a bunch of hacks to UI WebView to get it to process data. It was a lot slower. Um, so I think we're just lucky that we're doing this in 2018 when APIs really advanced on both sides. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the browsers have been doing a really good job of, of you know, adding features and, and making things easier. So that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm wondering, did, did you have to know a lot about the native platforms for iOS and Android to do this stuff or, 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 or kind of like not? Well, um, I, I've done some native development in my past. So, uh, I was pretty familiar with it and just, you know, we had, we, we've interacted with it over the last few years, just here and there, just by working on Ionic. So, uh, I wasn't a stranger to it, but I certainly wasn't like a professional native developer at all. Uh, I my reaction to spending the last few months kind of really deep into it is this stuff's probably you know writing Swift and Java and working with the SDKs. It's not necessarily too hard for web developers to do, or or, or too hard for developers to learn. I think the problem with it is. Uh, it's it's a lot of work to do the same thing on each platform, and I know that's kind of like the hybrid slash cross platform mantra, but but it really is true. Like I build a plugin for um, Capacitor that takes a photo right on on iOS and Android, and you get the same result in the end, right? I get like a a JPEG file that I load from the file system and I render it uh, to an image, um, but the way you do that on iOS and Android are so very different that like I think I think that's where it's it's hard. It's not it's not the APIs and SDKs are hard to use uh, because if you've done any kind of uh, native development on any platform ever, it's it's very much the same thing. It's just that they're so different and opinionated that bringing them together is a lot of work. Yeah, that's the the whole reason why Ionic is such a good thing is because nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do the work you're doing. <laughs> yeah, and like I I. I I, I love native development. It's, it's fun. And I've been having a lot of fun writing Swift because it kind of feels like TypeScript. Uh, but I just, you get the feeling like this is why I, I am building cross-platform tools because I'm just not the kind of person who really sees a lot of value in like knowing Android inside and out and only doing that because it just, it feels really limiting. Like I think, I think the reason we all use JavaScript and, and, you know, a lot of us build for the web is because 
you can build pretty much for anything. Uh, and so when you're building like an Android app or an iOS app, it just, it feels really constricting. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the logic, the solve problem solving, that's the fun part. Duplicating that in another language is not the fun part. Yeah, definitely not. feels like a lot of duplicated work, but I've actually, I've actually kind of fallen in love with, like I said, Swift, but actually Android studio, which I didn't expect. I've been, I've been spending a lot of time in Android studio and, and the shortcuts are pretty legit. It's fast. It's got great like Vim emulation. So uh, definitely recommend spending some time there. I think IntelliJ is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, when they switched, it definitely had a huge improvement. So for developers that are kind of listening that have been, you know, maybe using React Native for the last few months or a few years and haven't really kind of taken a look at Ionic, um, what types of apps are people building with Ionic? I mean... I don't think it's really limited to anything, but um, like, is it okay to build games? Is it okay to build like business type of applications, um, e-commerce? Like, you know, what kind of apps are people building and what kind of apps are people not building? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It, it is it is kind of all over the board. Um, you know, I think there's some some sweet spots that, that Ionic is, is really well suited for. I would say games is not one of those. Um, and I think, you know, we're... we're we're primarily based on web technology, and I think web technology just hasn't really taken off for games. But um, I'm excited about things like web VR, et cetera. Uh, uh, data-driven business apps are really kind of the sweet spot. Um, you know, I think uh, we we certainly have like flagship consumer apps being built with Ionic, and you and you can definitely build them, and we have our own, and we're, we're really happy with them. Uh, but for us, like the the data-driven business apps, kind of. Uh, where we're seeing the most growth. And, you know, when I think about Ionic, the company and the business, uh, what gets me the most excited about is kind of the stuff that you don't see, uh, uh, which is where a lot of the work is actually going into. So, um, you know, we work with some companies that are building, you know, tens, if not hundreds of apps for a lot of different things that they need to do in, internally. And these are things that, like, you can't really anticipate unless you know that business inside and out. Um, and, and often that's a learning experience for us. But, you know, you've got people in the field, they're storing data, storing it offline, you know, uploading it, filling out forms. Uh, it's, it's, you can, you can build anything with, the, with these technologies, but that's kind of the thing I'm most excited about is that use case. Yeah, and the framework agnostic direction you guys are going now is pretty, pretty huge too. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk to a lot of people who, um, they want to use Ionic, but they just not, they don't use Angular. And, um, kind of like what I was saying before that we, we realize like well, the framework and the UI thing, they're not necessarily intertwined. They don't need to have anything to, uh, they don't need to be so tightly bound. And, and, you know, what, what happened, uh, over the last few years in the company is we started hiring a lot of people who were interested in other things besides Angular, like, like, like Josh who's very much a React guy. And so, uh, the company culture changed a little bit where we, we were a little more di diverse on the front end. Um, but we felt like these components would be valuable for a lot of different people and wanted to change that. Um, and I think about like React and there's a lot of people and, and I've, I've talked to a decent number of people in the React community that are interested in continuing to build with traditional web technologies, even mobile apps. Like they want to build, you know, a lot of the content in different pages with, with the web. And maybe they want to wrap it with like a native, uh, you know, navigation controller or a native menu, but they're happy with a lot of the app being built on the web. Uh, we, 
we were hoping that they'll find Ionic useful for a lot of those pages. Um, that's one type of developer. But then also, like you know, I noticed, like React Native Web is is kind of becoming notable, and we hope that we've got a pretty compelling option there for people who are interested in that kind of project. Um, you know, potentially we're we're thinking about how we might map some of our components that we generate for React to be uh, follow the React Native tag names like View and Text View and things like that. So. Uh, kind of experimenting with that right now, and Josh is working on that. But um, I hope if if you're in the React community and you 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 like building web apps, you want to kind of build an app that's going to run in a lot of different places that has a browser. Uh, we hope you'll find the Ionic components to be uh, really helpful when they when they come out, which is going to be probably in April. So there's always these discussions on Twitter and and things about like well, kind of what you're talking about the the web. Uh, I guess performance, uh, performance, and kind of like people have different opinions on like, like if you're building a mobile application, should you use web technologies or na- native technologies? I'm kind of curious, like, what is your take on the current state? Because I know there's been just tons of improvement over the last couple of years, and the web continues to you know improve pretty quickly. But um, you know, like, where do do you see? Like, are we at a point now where you can kind of build apps that are um, almost truly native feeling with some of these web technologies? And that's my first question. And then my second question is, like, does Capacitor fit in separately from Ionic or is it something you use with Ionic or, or is it something that you use kind of like on its own? Yeah. So to answer the first question, I think there's a, a good class of applications where that's absolutely true, where... Um, the performance you get is is imperceptibly fast as any other app, and um, I say that as as a company that also builds its apps with Ionic that we're really happy with, uh, that we've never felt like didn't feel native on iOS or or Android. Um, you know, I think there's always it, there's overhead with the web platform. You don't just I, I think uh, there's no sense in denying that. Like it adds overhead. It's not as fast from a pure raw performance standpoint as rendering native views. Um, or you know, writing native code, um, and so for for us, like we that used to be something that we were insecure about, but now we know like there's a there's enough people out there that are going to build things that are, they're going to be really happy with with Ionic, and they're going to do it quickly. They're going to use um, you know that web development background they already have, and if what they're trying to build is a little more ambitious and it's just not you know web animations just aren't cutting it for them. Um, then maybe it's not a good option. I think they should know that in, uh, in advance. But you know, if you're if you're willing to tune those things, you can definitely get past a lot of roadblocks. Um, we find that we have to provide a lot of stuff out of the box. Uh, we really focus on performance and trying to make things fast um, and use kind of the the best browser techniques to get performance. Otherwise, um, you know, sometimes people can kind of shoot themselves in the foot animating the wrong properties. You know, web developers know this well. You start animating things like margin left, and suddenly your app feels terrible and, and stuttering and slow. So I think there's a little bit of an education process that that has to go on about how to get fast performance and giving people tools that avoid some of those pitfalls. So we, we've we've had to kind of learn that and and try to build better primitives. But yeah, I think a lot of people are su- successful with it. And I think it's just going to continue to get better. Um, so I'm I'm really bullish on it. Uh, I think with PWAs coming into the picture. Uh, it's it's exciting for us because um, you know the web being a first class citizen for building apps, you kind of have to make it work, right? So 
uh, we we think um, that's going to push us to make Ionic a lot better, uh, build a lot more controls, um, and really be kind of a first class offering in that in that space. So um, yeah, so so about capacitor, uh, the second question, um, you could think of capacitor as kind of um, it, it's a replacement for, for Cordova. So it has a web view that it communicates to native code back and forth, kind of through JavaScript. Uh, but you can, uh, the thing that we're trying to do to make it a little bit more modern is be able to wrap that web view with native controls. And, and this is something that has been popularized with a lot of apps. Like a lot of, uh, popular hybrid apps use this technique where they'll use like a native shell, like navigation control, um, or a menu, and then have a lot of the content be built with, with web technology. So we want to make that easy if that's something that you want. Um, so just being able to wrap in like UI navigation controller or a side menu or, you know, tabs if you want, and then build most of the app with, with web content. We're trying to make that easy with capacitor. Uh, that uh, may, see, that makes a lot of sense now that may, that, that actually explains quite a bit and that's super, super cool. I like that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're just trying to hit that sweet spot where, you know, we we're appealing to a web developer, but we give them kind of those, like, uh, you know, my boss just needs to have this, like the native nav controller. And it's like that one component that they have to have because, you know, it feels really nice. It feels smooth. But if the rest of the app is built with HTML and JavaScript and CSS, everyone's happy. So um, I, I think that's a sweet spot. And actually, uh, the Basecamp people, 37 Signals, uh, DHH, uh, they wrote they, that's kind of been a, a, a strategy that they've employed quite a bit as kind of this hybrid sweet spot. So we're trying to dial that in. So do you have like a set of components that are going to kind of be available? So it's already available as alpha and you mentioned that it's going to be beta soon. Like um, how many components or how many different APIs can you use with capacitor um, when it becomes you know available for like maybe version one or something? What are y'all shooting for? I'm counting right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, uh, probably about 15 to 20 APIs. I mean, everything from taking photos, doing background tasks, copying to the clipboard, file system, geolocation. So we're trying to just kind of get the core things that we think people are are going to use. The other thing that we're doing, which um, you know I think is going to be a little bit more controversial, uh, we I think people are struggling, and, and this isn't just limited to Cordova, um, but Cordova is a victim of this because it's just so popular. Um, people are struggling with with wanting more support from the plugins they're using, you know, and React Native, I think, has this this challenge, too. You've got all these volunteers who are building plugins and people are relying on them, but there's no way to kind of guarantee they're going to be updated or maintained. So we're going to be releasing a commercial pack of plugins that are kind of like hard plugins to build uh, that are, require a lot of work and maintenance. Um, and we're hoping that by having like kind of a balancing that the need to be afford to work on this stuff, like you know, open source maintainability and sustainability um, with, you know, a, a fair price that people can rely on and have updates. We hope to solve some of that kind of uncertainty um, because like people tell us the reason they they leave Cordova is because they're relying on this plugin that some dude wrote that he stopped maintaining it and it crashes in iOS 11. And that's not a Cordova specific problem. That's an open source specific problem. Um, and, you know, we're a business, but we also want to solve that because I think it becomes a liability for us. So part of this is that we, we plan to have some of those. Um, certainly you could go use the free open source ones. Like we, we're totally fine with that. 
Um, but we're experimenting and seeing if that kind of solves people's trepidation with relying on like open source components. So is this something you've already tried to do or is this something that's going to be coming out like with capacitor, these kind of um, official or these supported uh, components and APIs? Because this is absolutely something like I see uh, with React Native and different packages. It's like, okay, this package does what I need it to do. At least that's what the readme says it does. But does it actually, you know, work in this latest version? Um, and like, this is something that I've been intrigued, but I have got no idea like how you actually approach this. So it's very interesting hearing this kind of um, pay for support and like, how do you actually go approach that? Is it like a one-time purchase or kind of like a subscription, a maintenance type fee that you would charge? Um, that's a good question. I think whatever this thing is, is probably going to come out a little bit later. Uh, we just kind of want to get capacitor, like the open source stuff working and, and being, you know, really solid and replacing Cordova for some apps. Um, long-term, I think the business model is there's, there's some different ideas going on, going around the company right now. Uh, probably there's some kind of recurring aspect to it, whether that's, you know, the updated version you have to pay for updates, just like, uh, kind of like sketch does on, on desktop. Uh, that's probably the one that balances kind of the continual need uh, to work on these things and the cost that's kind of recurring. So I think there's probably a recurring aspect to it. Um, you know, I'm seeing some interesting models in open source for sustainability, like the open collective and things like that. Um, I think, I think it's a little bit harder when you have individuals who don't have like a, a umbrella to work under. Uh, so I don't know what the answer is. You know, I've taught, I've toyed around with, with an idea of like a plug-in fund where you could pay into this fund as like a customer potentially. And that fund pays out to different people to work on, uh, plugins or manage PRs. And I think that's interesting, but then you have to manage that fund and that's work. Um, so I don't know, it, it's, it's a hard problem, but I think it's something that has to be solved. And I, you know, sometimes I feel like the the ones who are going to provide the best solution are like the businesses like Ionic or like Exponent uh, Expo um, in, in React Native ecosystem. They're probably going to have the best answer in, in the shortest amount of time because they're commercializing the, the whole stack. Um, so, yeah, it's a hard problem, but I think it's uh, like we have to find a better solution because it's just not sustainable. Uh, this is my biggest pet peeve with React Native, the fact everything you just talked about because it's it's actually pretty bad when you can't even have a Google sign-in for um, a React Native application because it isn't available and no one has created and um, maintained one. And not that I'm saying like the developers are bad for not doing it because, you know, thank you for all, you know, all the stuff that they've done and, and all the stuff that we've done, you know, we, we, we do our best, but you know, you're, you're, you're investing all this time and money, um, you know, in your company to build a mobile application and you're, you're relying on this framework. And the fact that some of the most like essential business needs cannot be met, um, even though there's like, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars behind the companies using this framework, like why isn't that problem solved yet? Like I don't have the answer to it. It's just, like maybe maybe what you're doing, like if someone would do that for React Native, it would actually be awesome because we would, you know, that is a problem. And and, and if you solve this in a way for Cordova or for Capacitor, you know, you could you could 
definitely get a lot of developers from other ecosystems like React Native, probably from um, Native even, because you're you know you're just solving a huge problem. Yeah, you know, I think it comes down to developers being afraid to charge for things. It's one of our uh, it's one of our greatest features, and also something that I think pulls us back in some regards. Like we don't want to charge for these plugins because we want everyone to use them. Um, and you know, having a lot of people using something is valuable. But you know, we I, my perspective on that is we built Ionic as a um, kind of like I always joke, like we we always kind of had like a Silicon Valley mindset to Ionic. Like let's just get everyone using it, and we'll worry about making money later. Uh, and we, you know, we finance the business by raising venture capital and all this stuff. And you just get to a point where you realize like without a foundation of kind of a, a value exchange that makes sense on both sides, you're actually in a pretty weak position. Um, either that growth levels off because there's a finite number of developers, um, or, you know, you commercialize so heavily that you don't have a community. Um, and so I think, I think developers just need to be a little more willing to charge because, they're they're complaining about problems that can be solved with a more balanced kind of business approach. Like if I pay you for something and you you do that thing in a way that you're happy to do that thing, like that's a win win. Um, and you know we we get paid a lot. A lot of us are working on in businesses that are making a lot of money, um, like you just said. Uh, and I think we're just kind of coming to to the conclusion that you know paying someone for something is actually potentially in our best interest. And the the other thing I'll say too is like. Uh, maybe a little bit of a rallying cry to would-be entrepreneurs. Like this is a great space to be in. Uh, it feels like developers don't pay for things, but you know I can tell you firsthand they definitely do. It's just you you, you kind of have to you have to solve problems, and, and and it's not so much like oh they're just buying this one little component I made. It's like no, I'm solving your 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 mobile development problems. Like I'm helping you with a lot of different things, uh, and and just you know I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space, whether it's React Native or Ionic or uh, you know something completely different. And so uh, if you're out there kind of on the fringes, like I hope you'll consider that developers do spend money on things, and it's actually a really great space to be in. What you're talking about makes a lot of sense. Like me personally, I would pay. $100 a month to have access to kind of a quality set of components that solve things very well for things like navigation and for certain OAuth providers and, uh, and a few other things here and there. And most of the companies that I've worked with would definitely pay in the range of $100 to $1,000 a month for these things, depending on, you know, the, their budget, I guess, and kind of what, what kind of concerns they have. Because really... You know, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on developers to kind of, you know, make up for the things that are not in the ecosystem anyway. So it would actually save them money if they could just pay someone to maintain some of the really, really important core things. And for me, those things are like UI components, navigation, and OAuth. Those three seem to be the biggest ones for me that are not there. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think, I think companies are also like, you know, especially in bigger enterprises, like they're fairly new to open source. And a lot of them came from, uh, being like Microsoft customers and, and paying for a lot of different things like .NET controls and visual studio. And so they were okay with that for a little bit. Uh, but then open source came along and it turned out that some of the best products on the market were actually totally free in open source. And I think, I think we're kind of going roundabout 
back to the original um, understanding, which is like if I pay you for something, then we're kind of both incentivized to help each other. Um, and right now we just have a, a, a imbalance. So I totally agree. If you're solving those problems, like companies will pay a lot of money uh, for that, especially the bigger companies. I mean, I think that's the biggest opportunity. But even even small teams and consultancies and dev shops are a great place to build a developer tools company. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a, I guess a mind issue with this bad irony that you're using an open source tool and then you're paying for some you know components for this open source tool. You're in the open source community. That's the whole point. It's open source. It's you know code and free love and all that stuff. So there's this hurdle that people have to get over to realize okay, it's great that React is based on open source from a huge company like Facebook, that doesn't mean that we can't build paying real companies around that, you know, and that's just, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't jumped that hurdle to, to, to merge the open source and the commercial together because they're always seem to be at, at odds with each other. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think companies like Facebook and, and Google deserve a lot of credit for investing heavily in open source, but they have their own incentives. And I think, uh, I think some of the best opportunities to help developers with a lot of different problems that are kind of free from some of those, uh, overlapping incentives is to, to have like independent companies and, and, you know, small to, to big businesses solving developer tools problems. Um, cause then they're, they're going to solve like, you know, I'll do a Google connector for, for, uh, for react native. I'm not sure Facebook would do that. <laughs> yeah. And you had mentioned earlier, I know we kind of stopped you to get a little bit of the backstory, but you had mentioned you guys pro service and, and that incentivized around um, DevOps more, right? So it's kind of like this whole, okay, and then DevOps is becoming a thing people are, are willing to charge for and okay to pay for, even though it's an open source project. So that's definitely an area that seems to be kind of catching on and getting it a little better. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's definitely things that we felt like were off limits for, for charging. Like you can't charge for the buttons and the, uh, the things that just help you build the app. Cause if you do, then like, you, you know, you'll get people paying for it, but you're probably going to limit your addressable market. So if you can balance like giving enough away for free and in a way that's actually valuable, like we consider Ionic framework, like one of our most important products. Like it's not just an open source thing we do for free. Like it is the lifeblood of the company. So we really consider it a, major uh product but um we kind of have to balance like you know what's free to get lots of people using this with you know where do we build that commercial layer that helps all those people using it so um just kind of being a little bit smart about business models and and if anyone's listening to this like if you're interested in talking about this stuff like i love talking to potential uh founders and entrepreneurs especially in this space so uh definitely willing to to help out so we're kind of getting close on time but uh, before we wrap it up, is there anything that anyone wants to discuss that we haven't already kind of gone over? So, Max, where should people listening kind of go to get started with Ionic? And is like right now a good time to go ahead and, and jump in or should they wait for a certain upcoming release or, or, or anything like that? Yeah, we're, we're a little bit um we're a little bit behind on uh, the React specific stuff, but we're targeting April. So, um, you know, you'll be able to go to ionicframework.com and get uh, a version, uh, you know, npm install a version that works with React perfectly. 
Um, so probably April for that. So we're a little bit behind on that. Um, if you're interested in Capacitor, you can check it out. It's an alpha version. It works perfectly with React because it's you know it's just it's like a web view, so you can use whatever you want in that web view. Um, but you can go to capacitor.ionicframework.com if you want to check that out. Oh, I'm super interested in seeing the the React version of Ionic. Is it going to be kind of like a separate repo or a separate like um, I don't know, a separate thing as far as like in the documentation? Um, we we're trying to keep it somewhat seamless. So you know, imagine you go to the docs. We're working on this right now, actually. If you go to the docs, you'll be able to just kind of say, "I want the React version," and you know, a lot of the concepts and the contents the same, but you know, the code snip is different. The ins installation instructions are different. Um, but it's just going to be as simple as npm installing um, and just kind of getting to work. So, uh, yeah, it should be. We're trying to make it very natural for React developers, and you know, we. We actually use React inside of Ionic, so I think we've got some good uh, empathy for uh, what makes a good React API, hopefully. So uh, I think people will like it. Cool. So I guess we'll go ahead and get to the picks. Lee, do you have any picks tonight? Yeah, there's, there's um for the JavaScriptReport.com, there's the, kind of what's new in JavaScript frameworks. They just released it March 19th. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we did the... the uh, the podcast with uh, Sasha and the state of JavaScript, and it kind of covers a lot of that, kind of an updated view of that. And it's, it's interesting kind of to see the trends. View is still growing really fast in month-to-month -month growth, although it's, overall, I mean, it's nowhere near the React growth. But it, it, but it touches on View and React and Angular, and it, it covers a little bit of the React 16, React 17 talk. So there's a lot of good information in one place that kind of, up to date here in our almost next quarter. Um, so that was pretty cool. Spencer, do you have any picks? Yeah, I'm going to go a little bit off the wall here. And if you're looking to kind of get out of uh, technology land, I just finished reading a book. It's called Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Uh, it's by the author uh, John Steinbeck, and it's about this it's like a, a travel log of a trip across the country he took in uh, 1960. And it's just it was a really awesome story and just kind of listening about the challenges of the country and the insights he took on this trip. Um, so, yeah, it was a book I've enjoyed reading the last week or so. So definitely suggest checking it out. Very cool. I, I'll have to check that out. Um, two of my favorite books are from Steinbeck, Kenry Rowe and East of Eden. So I actually haven't heard of... Um, uh, what was the name of that book? Uh, Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Okay, that's going to be added to my list. Yeah, Very if cool. you like his books, you're gonna you're gonna love it. Awesome. Okay, uh, Max, do you have any picks? Uh, yeah. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know I I got my first mechanical keyboard recently, and I'm obsessed with it. Um, I, I've been a, uh, a Mac user for a while and I've used all the Mac keyboards and kind of religiously stuck with that equipment. And I found I was kind of getting, uh, uh, fatigue, wrist fatigue, wrist pain, et cetera. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the Mac products just aren't very ergonomic. Um, so anyways, I got this, uh, this new mechanical keyboard from the company, uh, WS, WASD, WASD, uh, it's a WASD V2, um, and so if you're on the fence about uh, getting a new keyboard, you're kind of, or maybe you're, you don't like the new MacBook keyboards, 
definitely check it out because I was hesitant and I'm like obsessed with it. I love it. It's such like a pleasure to to type on. So, so um, I have two picks. Uh, the first is a blog post that I saw today. It's called "What Happens When My React Native Application Starts," and it's a pretty deep technical dive into like what's going on under the hood. And I always have a difficult time explaining this because it's so complex and I don't honestly even understand everything that's going on. This person also agrees with the complexity and that he also cannot explain everything, but he explains a lot of things and um, I learned quite a bit from reading it. So his name is Nicholas Kovrat and the name of the post is Wait, what happens when my React Native application starts? And it's in the Get Connected Medium blog, which is also pretty good if you want to follow that. It's one of my favorite Medium blogs. They have, they have a lot of good uh, JavaScript stuff in there. And then my second pick is the AWS Amplify library that I kind of work on or work with. Um, we just added push notifications for React Native. So you can send push notifications for iOS and Android using um, AWS Amplify now, which is cool because that wasn't there like a week ago or two weeks ago. Um, we released it maybe two weeks ago. So yeah, so it was released and I just kind of uh, put together a couple of resources on it, a YouTube video and a blog post that'll be out on the React Native training blog by the time this comes out. So yeah, if you're interested in that, um, check it out. Um, okay, yeah, that wraps up the show. Uh, Max, nice to kind of sit down and talk to you learned a lot and it was really good getting to know you and thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to join us thank you so much for having me it's been a lot of fun i appreciate it all right well thank you everyone for listening this wraps up episode 93 of react native radio we'll see you next week